following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except only you. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To God and Father, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greeting all God's people in Christ Jesus, the brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people are here. Uh, all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. Amen. I recently came across an article that listed the most searched for, the top 10 most searched for Bible verses on the internet in 2022. Coming in at number one, John 3.16, uh, which I'm thrilled about. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Number two, Jeremiah 29.11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future. And the third most searched for verse out of over 31,000 in your Bible was Philippians 4:13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And given the way it's often used, we could oft also say, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. <laughs> but when it's rightly understood, which I'm hoping We'll all rightly understand it a few minutes from now. This verse is a beautiful and galvanizing promise. And it's one that could change your life. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn with me to the book of Philippians. This morning, we come to uh, the end of a series we've been in entitled Joy to the Church. Joy to the Church, a journey through Philippians. It's the middle of the first century. Uh, roughly A.D. 62. The Apostle Paul is sitting in a prison cell in Rome as he awaits a life-or-death verdict from the emperor. And he's writing this letter to a church that he helped plant about 10 years earlier in northern Greece. In fact, it was the first ever church in Greece, in the region of Macedonia. Paul has commended these believers in Philippi, he's instructed them, he's encouraged them, he's summoned them to unity, 
by means, over and over again. Unity is like the golden thread that runs through this letter, and he's summoned them to unity by means of humility, by means of the poured out life, the poured out life for the sake of others. And in the final passage of this letter, he once again, one final time, reveals to us his heart. Here's what I think is is the main idea of these final verses in Philippians chapter 4. You can face anything. You can face anything with the resources God supplies. Ultimately through His Son, but also through His people. You can face anything with the resources God supplies. Ultimately through His Son, but also through His people. We'll think about this in three points as we make our way through the passage. First, learning a secret. That's verses 10 to 13. Second, giving thanks. Verses 14 to 20. And third, signing off. Verses 21 to 23. Learning a secret. Giving thanks. Signing off. First, learning a secret. Verse 10. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Now, at first glance, this can kind of seem like a a veiled rebuke. But lest he be misunderstood, Paul quickly adds, middle of verse 10, Indeed, you were concerned. I know you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. He never doubted the Philippians' love and care. It just hadn't had the chance to blossom into tangible support. It's not like they could have logged on to a website, a ministry website, and found a, you know, donate to Paul button. It wasn't an option then. They, they were nearly a thousand miles away. They had no opportunity to give tangible expression to their concern for Paul until their messenger, Epaphroditus, arrived to be with him. Paul then clarifies, verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, because I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Notice this contentment is something he had to learn. When you read these familiar verses, do you notice that word, learned? This implies it didn't come naturally. Can you relate? (laughs) Now, of course, when it comes to the opposite, to discontent, we've all got PhDs. But when it comes to contentment, we have to enroll ourselves with Paul in this school. I think sometimes we can assume that discontent is this thing that really only affects certain kinds of Christians in certain seasons of life. For example, if you're single and longing to be married, that's kind of the stereotypical example. But we've got to see that this struggle, and indeed this sin, 
is not just a feature of single people's hearts, but of all people's hearts. It plagues every life stage, and it has ever since our first parents were content to doubt the Word of God and instead trust the whisper of a snake. But even recognizing all of that, even nodding our heads and affirming that, okay, I get it, discontent threatens me, it, it, it plagues me, no matter my life stage, it can still feel rather trivial, at least when we compare it to other sins, right? But though it might it feel that way, though, though your struggle with discontent might feel rather small and manageable, it is utterly serious. And it also might feel personal when in reality, it's unavoidably corporate and spreads like fire. I mean, whether you see it or not, your discontent is affecting how you interact with others, how you rejoice with others, and how you talk with others about God. And that's ultimately why it's not just a minor personality flaw, but an insidious sin, because it tells the world a lie about Him. It broadcasts a clear message, even if you're doing it in, in, in the safety of an interaction where you feel like you're just venting, it's broadcasting this message. His grace is not sufficient for me. His power is not made perfect in weakness. So you may not want to trust him either. See, discontent reigns on the throne of our hearts when we want what we don't have and have what we don't want. But God loves you too much to solve this by simply putting another circumstance on the throne. He's not interested in just putting another circumstance on the throne. He wants himself there. His ultimate uh, aim, his ultimate agenda is not just to rearrange your circumstances. It's to transform you. As the great author Elizabeth Elliot put it, reflecting on Paul's words here, the secret, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. And this secret encompasses the whole range of human experience. I mean, notice Paul says he's learned to be content with a little and with a lot. School's in session, not just in times of adversity, but also in times of abundance. I mean, what in, we know what this means. What, is, what does it mean? What in the world does it mean to be content when you've gained it all? Well, it means that you recognize you're not entitled to those things, and you don't assume that they'll always be there in the future. You embrace God's gifts, but you don't squeeze them. There's a fine line between those two things. You embrace the gifts, but you don't white-knuckle them. You don't squeeze them. You don't stake your life on them. As Bobby Jameson recently told us, you realize life, your whole life, is like a childhood snow day. You enjoy it while it lasts, but you don't try to freeze it and keep it there forever. And if you do, it's going to melt away in your hands. Some might read Paul's words in verses 11 and 12, and indeed some have uh, throughout history, and just assumed that this was a kind of just ancient 
stoicism, what Paul is saying, right? He, he seems just utterly unflappable, unfazed, unaffected by circumstances. And in the history of philosophy, there is a perspective that describes this. There's a perspective called amor fati, love of one's fate. It means you're resigned to everything that happens to you as being not only necessary, but good. Here's how Friedrich Nietzsche put it. Quote, my formula for greatness in a human being is amor fati, to want nothing to be different than what it is to want nothing to be different than what it is, neither in the past, nor in the future, nor in all eternity, not merely to endure necessity, still less to conceal it, but to love it. That's Nietzsche. And it kind of sounds like Philippians 4 on the surface. But Paul is not a stoic or a nihilist, who who believes everything is finally meaningless. He's a Christian. His, to use Nietzsche's phrase, his formula for greatness in a human being is not love of one's fate, but rather trust in God's will. That's where contentment is grounded, in the provenness of God's character and in the brightness of his promises. I mean, just imagine if with Paul, what what your life, imagine what your life would be like. Imagine what practical difference it might make in your life this week if you adopted this perspective, if you learned this secret, secret, if you enjoyed this kind of spiritual fortitude and inner calm. I'll tell you what your life would be like this week. It would be amazing. It would be liberating. It would be relieving. It would be rest-giving. And according to the Bible sitting on your lap, it is absolutely possible. And then we come to the famous sentence, which is really just a summary of what he's saying. Verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. When you read your Bible, context is king. Context is king. This is is not, Philippians 4.13 is not a blank check for positive thinking. It's not about you being able with Christ's strength to dunk a basketball or score a touchdown or ace an exam. What he means in context is essentially, I can survive all things through Christ who strengthens me. In context, it's I can endure all things with joy through him who gives me strength. The NIV translates this very helpfully here. Look carefully at what it says. I can do not all things in the universe. I can do all this. That is the stuff I've been talking about through him who gives me strength. And the reason why this is such an ironclad assurance, the reason why we shouldn't kick Philippians 4.13 to the curb and just dismiss it and scoff at those who love it. No, the reason why we need to reclaim it as precious is because the one who strengthens us by his spirit is the same one who sends us into particular seasons and situations in accordance with his wisdom and who remains with us every step of the way. As Charles Spurgeon beautifully said, remember this, remember this, 
had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Whatever condition you're in, wherever divine wisdom and love has put you, He can empower you to live joyfully, to live faithfully, to endure all things through Christ who strengthens you. Learning a secret. Number two, giving thanks. Verse 14, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. The word share is a, is a form of the word koinonia, which we've seen throughout the letter, referring not just to fellowship, but to a kind of vital life-giving partnership, partnership in the gospel, partnership in grace, partnership in suffering, and as we'll see here, partnership that takes on a tangible, even financial expression. Verse 15, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. One just interesting thing to note is that the Philippian church was brand new when they were already supporting Paul when he was in Thessalonica. Go back to the book of Acts. You'll read about Paul planting the church in Philippi in chapter 16, and then he's in Thessalonica in chapter 17. This was a church that wasted no time having a kingdom-minded, big-hearted perspective and letting their love and concern take on tangible expression. But then Paul offers a clarification. See that in verse 17? He's like, okay, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. In other words, I'm not ultimately after your money. I want you to get to share in the harvest and to reap a spiritual reward. Sinclair Ferguson observes, quote, In a sense, Paul says very little about the content or usefulness of the gift he has received. He's more concerned with the spiritual commitment it expresses, the spiritual bond it creates, and the spiritual blessing to which it will lead. Paul is more interested in the blessing they'll gain by giving than the relief he might experience from the gift. Here is an extraordinary fruit of grace. A gift getter who's most thankful for what the gift tells him about the gift givers. Now, this might be a little counterintuitive because we understand how our giving, specifically financially, how it benefits others, how it advances the mission of God, how it's an act of worship to him. But how does it bless you to give away your money and possessions? Well, it's not automatic. doesn't do this every time. But giving away money has a pretty good batting average of helping people fall out of love with money. And when you fall out of love with money, then you start to fall in love with God and the most important things in the universe, which is why you have breath in your lungs. That's why you exist. As Jesus himself said, it is more blessed, more happy to give than to receive. Verse 18, 
I've received full payment. This is a term, the term here for full payment uh, is something the Romans would write on ancient receipts as a way of saying this, this has been paid in full. I've, I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. This isn't the first time we've encountered this fellow Epaphroditus. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 25, Paul wrote, It's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. Remember, he's the guy that the Philippians enlisted to come 800 miles to Paul in Rome to serve him, to resource him, but somewhere along the way, he fell ill and almost died. And Paul holds him up as an example of the poured out life, of risking your your comfort and your safety and your well-being for the good of others and the glory of Christ. And notice the Philippians' concern for Paul wasn't reduced to well wishes or positive thoughts. They weren't content merely to just think good things about Paul or even merely to pray for him from a distance. It was a love that eventually took on tangible expression. One of the whole reasons he's written this letter is to commend them and to thank them for their financial support. This is like the original missionary thank you support letter. And there are several other things to see here in in verses 17 and 18. I'm just going to briefly mention four. First of all, Paul is not saying, he is not saying in verses 17 and 18 that the Philippians can now expect material affluence because they've given generously. Especially verse 17 when when he's talking about this being credited to their account. That is not what he's saying. That is an insidious teaching. And so many so-called churches today that effectively says, if you can just muster enough faith and give enough money to a particular ministry to prove that you have enough faith, then God will reward you. He not might, he will reward you financially in return. This is known as health and wealth theology or prosperity theology. And I don't say this lightly or flippantly, It's satanic theology. Why? Because you don't have to even be a Christian to desire material blessings from God. But you do have to be a Christian to give thanks in all circumstances to him. I mean, it's been pointed out before that prosperity can be no proof of God's favor Prosperity can be no automatic proof of God's favor. How do we know that? Because it's what the devil promised to those who worshiped him. See Jesus in the wilderness. As the African pastor Conrad Mbewe says, when you look into the light of the gospel sun, when you stare, when you look into the light of the gospel sun, you will despise the miserable candles held out to you by prosperity teachers. The second thing is, notice Paul says, I'm amply supplied 
now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Now, if we're reading carefully, not thinking about other things, thinking about what we're going to have for lunch or what we're going to do this week, if you're, if you're tracking with me, this should give you a little pause. You should be thinking something along the lines of, Paul, I thought the whole point of verses 11 to 13, which people have tattooed on their bodies that people love, the whole point of those verses was that you've already been amply supplied because you have everything you need in Jesus. Isn't that what you just told us? So which is it, Paul? Does he meet your needs or do his people meet your needs? To which he would say, yes. So often, Christ's all-sufficient strength, all-sufficient provision is mediated to us through his people. As we declare in our church covenant, we experience the grace of God where and how. We experience the grace of God in and through the care of his saints. Third thing, look again at how Paul describes the Philippians' gifts. Verse 18, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. He's drawing on imagery from the Old Testament sacrificial system. There's rich background here. It's a way of saying, hey, yeah, we're not still under the old covenant law in these atoning sacrifices, but Every believer in the new covenant is a priest with direct access to God through Jesus and who offers sacrifices not to atone for sins, but to worship the one who did. I can think of five sacrificial offerings that the New Testament applies to you if you're following Jesus. Maybe you can think of more. Tell me at the door afterward. But I can think of five sacrificial offerings that every believer who is a new covenant priest is called to offer up. The first is the sacrifice of praise, Hebrews 13, 15. The second is the sacrifice of service, Hebrews 15, I'm sorry, 13, 16. So back-to-back verses there. Sacrifice of praise, sacrifice of service. The third is the sacrifice of yourself. Romans 12, 1. The fourth is the sacrifice of others' souls through your evangelism. Romans 15, 16. And number five is the sacrifice of giving. Philippians 4, 18. Philippians 4.18 is just a richly theological way of saying that generosity smells good to God. Fourth, and finally in this point, this passage is relevant to RCBC's own philosophy, our own philosophy of missions giving. We're a new church, and we have a lot of specifics to figure out, but overall, our vision for missions is to identify a few strategic places around the world where we know trusted people and we're enthusiastic about their work and throw our resources there 
rather than trying to support every single good cause that comes across the desk. Now, a lot of churches with with good intentions, okay, so here we're not in the realm of law, we're in the realm of wisdom, but a a lot of churches with, with good intentions adopt what I would call a floodlight approach to missions, a floodlight approach where the goal seems to be how many places in the world can we get our people excited about and have a small hand in reaching? How many places can we put the RCBC sticker on? But the elders here are convinced that actually the way of wisdom long-term, given our, every church's and person's limitedness, our finitude, the the, the way of wisdom long-term is to adopt not so much a floodlight approach to missions, but a laser light approach to recognize our limits and support a finite number of strategic partners that we can actually go deep with. I mean, notice that Paul was so well-funded by the Philippians that he essentially says in verse 18, I'm good now. I don't need anything else. It wasn't just a bless-your-heart gift. I mean, this was real, fully-backed support. One way we do this and will do this here at RCBC is through the cooperative program and the International Mission Board, which fully supports missionaries so that they can be freed up to not have to constantly bear the burden of raising and maintaining support. That's a huge gift. And we're also excited about other organizations that have this kind of laser-like Deeper with fewer, deeper with fewer emphasis. That is, we pick fewer in order to really know them in their work and contribute more than just money. So whether it's through the IMB or, let's say, a group of churches partnering together to support a specific work in a big way, we want to free our workers to give their best attention and their best energy to the people they've been sent to reach and when they're back on furlough, to be able to give their best energy to the churches that are partnering with them. This is one reason, uh, uh, I'm sorry, every every member of this church has made a promise. So I've already already referenced the church covenant once. I'll do it again. We're going to rehearse these promises tonight before our members meeting. Uh, This is a living document in the life of River City Baptist Church. Every member has made this promise, and I prayed about it earlier in the service, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the ministry of the church, to the needs of our neighbors, and to the spread of the gospel from the heart of Virginia to the ends of the earth. RCBC, brothers and sisters, let's pray that we would be a church, especially as we become more established, that is eager to leverage our resources to see the gospel advanced and healthy churches established in strategic places around the world. Paul then summarizes the whole flow of thought in verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs. So it's a promise, okay? My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Notice again what he's not saying. This is not a promise that God will meet all your wishes, all your desires, all your preferences. The the Lord of heaven and earth is not a vending machine. 
No, the promise is God will meet every one of your needs. And in context, it means he'll enable you to endure anything, trusting his character, trusting his heart, no matter what happens, no matter where you find yourself, and that his great omnipotent supply line will come to you through the tangible sacrifice of other believers to provide, who will provide precisely what you need when you need it, and often not a second sooner. As it's been said before, God is, God is never late, but he's seldom early. And we, if we've walked with him, we know, uh, we know what that is like as, as we encounter his wisdom in ways that don't always accord with how we see things. And he'll supply everything you need, Paul says, according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. I said he's not a vending machine, but according to this verse, he is a treasure chest, a bottomless reservoir of resources for the believer in need. As Paul says to the Colossians, in Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. And speaking of needs, speaking of needs, if you're here today and, and you have not yet hidden yourself in Christ by faith, if you're not relying on him, trusting him, then your greatest need, your most pressing need is not to be financially supported. It's to be spiritually saved. The Bible says that all of us have, have turned away from God, and in so doing, we have amassed this crushing, incalculable debt. And it's not just an incalculable debt, it's an unpayable debt. Left to ourselves, every one of us is morally and spiritually bankrupt. But the Bible rings with good news. The Bible rings with the good news that God sees us in our bankrupt state and he comes to us with riches of grace. As Paul says elsewhere to the Corinthian believers, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become spiritually rich. He lived a perfect life and he died on the cross and rose for the morally bankrupt, which is another way of saying he did it all for sinners like you and like me. And the news of the Bible, the news that comes forth from, from the pages of the Bible is that if you come to him with your bankruptcy, if you come to him with empty hands of faith, all your moral and spiritual debts become his and all of his spiritual wealth becomes yours. Well, verse 19 ended. And by the way, if, if you have not turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus, if you've not brought your bankruptcy and your debts to him and received grace and mercy in return, then you can do that today. And this room is filled with people who would love to talk to you about how you can begin a new relationship with Jesus Christ. I'll be at the door afterward. Others would love to talk to you about what it would mean to be a Christian. Well, verse 19 ended, according to the, to the riches of God's glory, glory in Christ Jesus, which essentially leads Paul to say, and speaking of glory, verse 20, 
To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. No Roman prison cell could contain his adoration. His heart here is just exploding in praise. If you want to know where the book of Philippians has been heading all along, if you want to know where the Bible is heading, if you want to know where history is heading, where your own life is heading, if you want to be in sync with the whole reason the universe exists, then here you go. It's to bring glory to God. What's the connection between this exclamation mark and all the preceding verses that we've looked at in the passage? Well, it's that God will be glorified when he is seen to be enough. God will be glorified when he is seen to be the one who is enough for us, such that we are content to rest in him and to trust him to supply all of our needs learning a secret, giving thanks, and third and finally, signing off. Verse 21, greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. So the word greet or greeting shows up here three times. This is the kind of thing, let's admit it, that we're attempted to skim past, but it mattered to Paul and it should matter to us. For him, normal Christian living involved warm expressions of affection. Verse 22, he then says, all God's people here send greetings. So the circle is getting wider and wider. All God's people here send you greetings. And then there's a curious phrase, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Now, this is not necessarily the emperor's direct family, but those who serve them, those in the Roman civil service. Look back Keep your finger in chapter 4. Look back at chapter 1. Do you remember at the very beginning of this series, we looked at chapter 1, verse 13. Remember, Paul's in prison, and he's exuberant. (laughs) And why is he exuberant? Well, among other things, chapter 1, verse 13, because it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard that I am in chains for Christ. It's become clear throughout the whole palace guard. And then in chapter 4, verse 22, at the very end, he says, all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. As one commentator writes, Paul may be in prison at Caesar's pleasure, but the gospel has penetrated Caesar's household. It's important to remember who is finally in charge. And this has really practical applications for us because it reminds us to never underestimate what God might do with you just being faithful in suffering. I mean, look at what God did with a group of people that wouldn't have otherwise had any access to the gospel of grace. But because one sufferer was willing to leverage his circumstances to speak of King Jesus, those in the very emperor's household were able to hear and receive the gospel and bow their knee to the King of Kings. I mean, and just imagine how hearing this for a Philippian, a young Philippian believer trying to find their way in the Roman world, they've just 
become a dual citizen, right? A citizen of Rome, but also they're ultimately a citizen of heaven, but they feel the clash, they feel the tension. It's a struggle. Imagine hearing this report about what's going on in Caesar's household, how this would have just galvanized their young faith. I mean, the Roman Empire seemed invincible, unbreakable, unstoppable. The Romans would throw Christians to the lions. It was the most epic empire in human history. And today you can pay 40 bucks to walk through its ruins. Kingdoms will rise and fall, but the gates of hell will never prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. And then the very final statement of the letter, Paul ends where he began. Chapter 1, verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. He said a lot about joy. He said a lot about unity. But he bookends the whole book with God's grace. As we finish this series in conclusion, let's just use our imaginations one last time to travel back to the first century, to put ourselves in the shoes or the sandals, I guess, of, of the Philippian believers as they would have received this letter for the first time. Listen to how Ray Ortland describes the scene. It's the Lord's Day in the great Macedonian city of Philippi, sometime in AD 62. During the previous week, Epaphroditus has returned from Rome with this letter from the apostle in hand. The buzz has gone around the Christian network in town, and everyone is excited to hear the letter read aloud when the church gathers for worship. Eudia is there, as is Syneche, but not yet sitting together. Eventually, an elder stands and welcomes everyone, prays, leads them in a hymn of praise. Then he asks Epaphroditus to step forward and join him at the front. Everyone claps and cheers, receiving him in the Lord with all joy. Epaphroditus, after giving a brief account of his journey and of Paul and his situation, relays Paul's greetings and formally presents the letter to the elders of the church. The presiding elder then reads aloud Paul's letter, which takes about 15 minutes. As the letter is read to everyone, in rapt attention, the Holy Spirit is speaking to their hearts. They start changing, at least a little, under the ministry of this letter. They become more willing than ever before, some of them dramatically more willing, to offer themselves to God as a Christ-like sacrificial offering. A hush settles over the courtyard. A solemn happiness as the Spirit imparts a wonderful sense of the glory of Christ. Paul knew this would happen. He meant it to happen. He wanted to share in it. Back in Rome, he's sitting in his prison cell on that same Lord's Day. And his deepest emotion is joy. Having years before settled the matter in his own heart that he is himself a living sacrifice. 
the humility of the poured out life has taken its rightful place of happy authority at the center of his soul. The great apostle doesn't feel that he is the most important figure around which the Philippians ought to rally. They are the important ones. He views their daily faith with all as they stand firm in one spirit, striving for the gospel, not running from conflict, but engaged in it, shining as lights in their world, holding fast to the word of life. Paul remembers how he first met them. Pagans living as pagans must. But he's watched the gospel transform them from pagans into, chapter 1, verse 1, saints of Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Though he's witnessed these gospel miracles over and over around the Mediterranean world, he is always moved by the saving power of God. Brothers and sisters, the secret to living out the upward call, the secret to living out the upward call is pouring out our lives and doing so in imitation and honor of our Savior who emptied himself and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross so that we could be raised with him in resurrection life. We can love because he first loved us. We can pour ourselves out for others because he first poured himself out for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would use the ministry of this inspired letter to bear great fruit in the life of River City Baptist Church. Lord, we pray that that we would be different, that we would be changed as a result of having spent three months working through this letter. We, we pray that we would be marked by joy and by unity and that we would never forget that that comes via the road of humility as we pour out our lives for one another and for you. And we pray that in all of this, you would look great from the heart of Virginia to the ends of the earth. And it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.